iTunes presents Meet the Author. Today on the iTunes Meet the Author series, we're talking with Dominican-American writer Juno Diaz. He's a professor of creative writing at MIT, author of the critically acclaimed short story collection Drowned, and more recently, the Pulitzer Prize-winning novel The Brief and Wondrous Life of Oscar Wow, which was also selected as one of the top 10 fiction books of 2007 by Time magazine. Juno Diaz has also been named by The New Yorker as one of the top 20 writers for the 21st century and has graced the cover of Newsweek magazine. Let's welcome author Juno Diaz. Thank you for having me. So without giving too much away, can you give us a brief synopsis of the book? Uh, The Brief Wondrous Life of Oscar Wilde is about a Dominican family living in New Jersey. Um, It's specifically about the youngest son, Oscar De Leon, who is this incredible, uh, huge uh, nerd. He loves all things science fiction and fantasy, and it's about his quest for love and his family's quest for love. It's like this this entire family trying to find a place in the world and trying to find intimacy, and the, the rub is that the family may or may not be uh, cursed by something called the Fuku, which is this really ancient folkloric curse from the Dominican Republic. And what inspired you to create this story? Ah, uh, well, I mean, one of it, well, one of the things that is that I just felt like I belonged to that subsect of Dominican immigrant kids who had gone to school, we'd gone to college, and we grew up in the traditional neighborhood where not many people had gone to college. And because we were college educated and we read books and stuff, we were kind of freaks in our own community. Right. And I wanted <laughs> to write. I wanted to write a novel about that group of you know, Latino kids who are in college, who nobody knows anything about, who don't appear on television, who don't appear in movies. Um, they're almost never the heroes of books. And, uh, you know, Oscar Wilde is really about that group of uh, young people. And I, I just felt like no one was doing anything with these lives. If a Latino was going to write a book, uh, I felt most of the time it was about gangs or, you know, some sort of like romance, which I think is is fine. I think we need those books, but we also need books about the kids who went to college, the kids, you know, who want to be poets, the kids who write plays, the kids who want to make movies, and that was what this book had as its inspiration. Yeah, I think that's why I love the book so much, because it really speaks to that typical Hispanic American experience where you're not really growing up Latino, but you're not really growing up American. You've got to kind of walk that fine line between these two cultures. And, you know, when you're here in the States, you're, you know, not Cuban enough or, or, or too Cuban or too Mexican or too Dominican. And then you go back to your homeland and you're not, you know, Mexican enough. And you're the, the white girl or la gringa, as um, Lola gets referred to. I think that's really funny that she, while she's here in the States, is la negra. And then she goes to the Dominican Republic and she's la gringa. Well, but you know, the thing is, is that this is no surprise. I think we take it as, as Latinos who travel back and forth. We probably take it more personal than we should. You know, our our communities have a way of, of uh, communicating their anxieties and their fears about 
us in ways that I think sometimes we're uncomfortable with, you know? Mm-hmm. I mean, when I go back home to Santo Domingo, the first things that people want to say to you is that like, oh, tu eres un gringo, tu no eres dominicano. And I think a lot of that, you know, you got to take that at face value. If you, if you really listen to what people are saying to you in the first few weeks of your visit, it's going to really piss you off. But if you <laughs> stick around, if you stick around long enough and understand where that's coming from, uh, you begin to realize that people have much more nuanced views of who you are and where you belong. And I think that what ends up happening is that most people hear that. That's the first thing they hear, and it hurts them, and it's the only thing they stick that sticks with them. But I think it does really well to explain to anybody who's not a Latin American or any other kind of, you know, American immigrant as to what it is that we go through, you know, on a daily basis. Well, I mean, that's it's, it's remarkable. Anyone who lives in multiple cultures, whether you're a poor kid who's, you know, she's got a she's going to a private school academy, whether, you know, you're a Vietnamese kid who then has to go into an all English American high school, whether you're a Dominican kid in New Jersey, um, you know, who travels back to Santo Domingo, anyone who's negotiating multiple cultures. The craziest thing is you become very aware of the price of authenticity and how much people expect you to be authentic anything. Right. And but also you become aware of its utter impossibility. There's nothing like being an immigrant or someone living between two worlds to realize that chasing authenticity is 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 basically a lost cause from the beginning because there's no such thing. Yeah. It's whatever your reality is. And just what people are so busy trying to label you and you begin to realize like my god you know, if I listen to everybody trying to label me, I'm going to end up like more than schizophrenic. <laughs> All right, let's get back to the book. So it took you over 10 years to complete this novel. I can't imagine spending a decade working on any one project. Did you ever at some point during that time just get frustrated to the point or bored or you know, to the point where you're just like, screw this, I'm done? Oh, yeah, man. I mean, <laughs> gee whiz. I worked on this book, uh, you know, a decade, and it, it almost drove me insane. I mean, I, I basically, uh, if it's one of those things where it's so easy to be a writer or an athlete or a business person if all you're doing is succeeding, if you're just going from strength to strength. The, tr- the true test, if you're a writer, for me is can you remain in failure for a long time but still believe that you have talent and i spent a decade basically being kicked in the teeth by this book and there was enormous frustration and enormous sense that nothing was ever going to work out and basically there was a part of me that kept saying you know what you should quit you're not going to do this and there was another part of me that kept saying if you quit you'll never find out if you're really capable of this thing you're dreaming about, which is writing this book. So, oh, no, I went bananas. I lost relationships, (laughs) lost friends. Oh, my God. Well, and it's funny that you refer to that period or those periods like as a failure, continuing to be a failure. I wouldn't, from the outside looking in, I wouldn't even say that at all. And now you're Mm -hmm. a Pulitzer Prize winner. (laughs) Sure, but when you're, you know, when you're in the process of writing and everything you write for like five years, you have to throw away because it's crap. Believe me, it's hard. It's hard to maintain an upbeat attitude. Yeah. And I do think it's remarkable what I learned about this is that I never had this kind of adversity modeled to me as a kid. Mm-hmm. I'd never met anyone who had done something for 10 years and then come out on top. 
Right. Most of the time in the community I grew up with, if you if you fail or if you don't if it doesn't come to be in a year, they tell you, oh, you should switch gears. And I'm glad I stuck with it, you know, and I mean, I'm glad I had the support, too, because there was a lot of people who inside and outside the community who just said, well, you're the one who's suffering. So it'll be easy for me to tell you, keep going. So just keep going. Right. Well, thank God. It's an amazing novel. And as I said, now you're a Pulitzer Prize winner. Congratulations. How, how has that changed your life or has it? It hasn't yet. I mean, I'm still kind of a gloomy sort of uh, doesn't write enough kind of person. I mean, it changes your life in that it raises your visibility. I mean, it is one of the most extraordinary awards uh, a writer in the U.S. can get. You know, it's it's basically going to define me as an author no matter what I do next. So it's enormous in that way. But as far as changing my personality and my way of, you know, my, my, my sort of way of life, it hasn't done much at all because it's not like, you know, making two or three movies would be more likely to change your, you know your way of life. Uh, but this is, it's just something that I feel like, I feel like it was a tremendous gift, a tremendous honor, and it honors me and the community which helped produce me. And personally, do your students treat you differently in your family? Oh, hell no. My family's an immigrant <laughs> family. They don't know what a Pulitzer is. They're just like, oh, how much money did you get? Well, that sounds like a terrible award. That's you funny. Know? And, uh, and my students, That's pretty what typical. do my students care? Yeah, yeah, man. My students are like, they're busy leading their own lives. They're trying to figure out how they pay their way through college and how they get this next date and how, you know, they can look cuter than they looked the day before. I mean, honestly, I will come back to teaching in September and I will be as anonymous as I was the last time. And that's not a bad thing. So you think. We'll see. No. Now, let me tell you, had I cut, uh, you know, a number one album, then it would be really <laughs> different. My students would all be lining up. but. Writing? Come on, man. Uh, well, I'm pretty impressed. Um, well, no, thank you. Thank you. What kind of pressure does that put on you for your next novel? Uh, well, I'm the king of putting pressure on myself. <laughs> so, I mean, really, the Pulitzer Prize can just can, can take a number and wait because I've got like 80 other reasons to put pressure on myself. I mean, I, I tend to write incredibly slow anyway. I'm never going to write fast. I think we've got at least 10,000 published writers who write a book a year or every two years. I'm, I'm, I don't belong to any of that. I'm, I'm one of these people who writes very slow. Uh, but am I already pulling out what's left of my hair thinking that, damn, I got to <laughs> write something good? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I'm like thinking, shoot, now I've got to like, you know, really produce, produce something. Yeah. And do you yeah, think man. it'll take you another 10 years? Or are you going to try and cut that down? You know what? The, the thing is, is that there's no way that you can put a book into your date book. You can't schedule art. Right. People have. I think there's people who are very comfortable with scheduling their art. They're like, I will write a book every two years. And you can tell. I have never, I've never had a relationship with art that way. No matter how desperate I want for it to come, it's like un muchacho malcriado. No matter what I tell that piece of work, it will do whatever it wants and appear when it wishes to appear. Talking about Muchacho Malcriado, how do you respond to the critics who question your use of Spanish and slang or certain words that they deem inappropriate? Um, what's your response to that? Well, again, I'm I'm not a politician. I'm, I don't, as in, the point of being an artist is that you are not beholden to the culture of respectability, or you're not supposed to be beholden to the culture of respectability. The role of an artist is to move beyond this idea of, or at least to question and problematize, 
people's desire to control the kinds of words we use and right. the kind of language we use. Uh, unfortunately, look, we're living uh, in the United States where there's a lot at stake, the ideas of Spanish and English. Fortunately, we live in the United States where there are an enormous amount of languages spoken in our schools, in our streets, in our homes. Anyone who reads a book set in the United States where the book is monolingual is basically reading a book about the American myth, a concept of America that doesn't exist. Mm -hmm. The reality of America is multilingual. If people want to say that it's bad uh, an author or an artist uses more than one language, hey, I, I'm not going to argue against your dream of a country that doesn't exist. I know the country that I've seen my whole life is a country that's multilingual. It's certainly a country where a tremendous amount of Spanish is spoken. And so if I really want to attempt to write about this country in any way, then I've got to attempt to address the fact that, you know, to live in the United States meaningfully requires, at the minimum, some understanding of Spanish and English. And I think that, you know, trying to avoid that reality, that's great for the politicians. You know, if you want to be a, <laughs> a right wing or a left wing nut and say this is America or English only, hey, that's great. The reality on the ground is completely different. That's like saying we're winning in Iraq. Well, I got two nephews in Iraq and the reality on the ground seems to be quite different. Yeah, I agree. Bravo. Let's talk about your um, style of writing. I'm fascinated at how you were able to weave like such an engaging, comedic, and realistic tale that fuses two cultures and language, multiple eras, a ton of pop culture, sci-fi, politics, history, uh, war atrocities, suicide, and a love story. <laughs> how were you able to do that? Yes. Uh, part of it is by forcing yourself to, to work. I mean, look... The one thing I, I thought about was that I grew up in hip-hop. Hip-hop is a huge part of what I grew up in. And if you look at any of the hip, if you look at any hip-hop catalog, there's not an MC out there who doesn't constantly refer to comic books, to cartoon, to popular culture. Right. It's been embedded in the vernacular of hip-hop from the beginning, which is a fancy way of saying that shit's been there all the Right. You know, always. And I think that part of it is that I don't think I'm doing much that is new. I'm just kind of extracting stuff that has been there and has been present. And, you know, the other thing about cramming a whole bunch of disparate things and try to make them work simultaneously, the hard part about that was trying to make it happen in like 300 pages. <laughs> I, I think that what ends up happening is that we've come to a place where a Batman movie is two hours and 40 minutes, where the new King Kong is three hours and 40 minutes, but the original King Kong is an hour and 20 minutes. Right. There's this enormous bloat. I think that in my dreams with this book, I was trying to do all these things at once because that's how we live. Even though you might go to the club looking cute with a nice pair of shoes or a new shirt, the reality is that if we could look into your mind and into your history, into your context. You're an incredibly complicated person with an enormous amount of history and an enormous amount of culture embedded and defining who you are. And the idea for me as an artist is how do I paint a picture that both honors and sort of gives the impression that that's happening in a book? And the second challenge was for me was the one I said, how do I do that without making it a thousand pages long? I felt like you should be able to give an honest impression of a human being 
who's multiply determined, multiply defined, living in multiple worlds, and not need a thousand pages. Right. Especially with the historical references, I love that you were able to make them entertaining and enlightening and relevant to the book. I think that opens up the book to a wider audience of readers, maybe younger readers that don't let's face it, none of us really know of our, about the history of our own homelands. You know, we don't really get taught that in school. So I love that you were able to do that. Just wanted to give you a kudos on that. No, thank you. It's it's an obsession. I mean, if you live in a family where your mom and dad went through the American invasion, um, they don't live, when they talk about it, they certainly don't sound like an American history book. So I just wanted to sort of sound as lively and as funny and as sort of you know, human as they sounded. There's a lot of history repeating itself, like things coming full circle in the book. First, Belly being, you know, her father being imprisoned and murdered by Trujillo, and then Belly almost being mur- murdered by his sister. Um, Belly rebelling against her mom, Lola doing the same thing, and both of them feeling like they had to escape. Um, the beating in the cane fields with Belly and Oscar. Um, why did you use a lot of that? It depends on how you read the book. I mean, one of the things that I always thought about the book was that this is a family that may or may not be cursed. And the curse, this fuku, which, you know, comes out of the Caribbean, comes out of the island that's divided between Haiti and the Dominican Republic, um, is just a, it's an interesting tactic to talk about how history follows us. Like, what are the consequences of history? Right. And in this family... One of the things that happens between Belly, the mother, Lola, the daughter, Oscar, the son, the grandparents, is that nobody communicates. Nobody tells anybody what their experience is. So they're all making the same mistakes again and again and again because instead of history in this family, there's silence. People think that they can escape from the history that haunts them by pretending it's not around or by Uh, protecting their children from it. But what ends up happening is by the lack of communications, the lack of narrative, the, you know, the use of silence for protection, what ends up happening is that it creates the opportunities for the young people to repeat the same exact mistakes that the elders made. Right. It's almost like they're doomed to repeat it at that point. Well, and they're only doomed to repeat it because of this silence, because the family, instead of embracing each other with the stories, instead of being honest and showing vulnerability, what they, the family tends to do is they run away from each other. They just run away from each other. And how they do that is by not telling anyone anything that has happened to them in their lives. And I think a lot of our families, whether you're from the Caribbean or you're in the United States, most families, what they don't, what they pass down is not history. What they pass down is silence to the detriment of their young people. And do you think with the introduction of the character of Lola's daughter that that's where it ends? Is that the sequel? Is there a sequel? But no, I I just think that the novel wants to give the impression that that there's more than one generation, that each generation has to address these issues. And, you know, the novel is obsessed with comic books and it quotes that Watchmen line, you know, where Dr. Manhattan says, you know, nothing ever ends. These stories, in a way, these curses and these histories have to be confronted and have to be navigated and have to be conquered by every single generation that comes. And that's that's a hard lesson, man. If you read Lord of the Rings or if you read Harry Potter, the bad guy can be defeated and we all go on our happy ways. But in reality, what is bad and dangerous and toxic and damaging about our cultures and our families lingers and has to be battled.
You just talked about a reference to a comic book, and I know you referenced also a lot of sci-fi movies, um, as well as music, uh, songs, dances, and musicians. If you could create a soundtrack for the book, what kind of music would you have on there? Man, that's that's, <laughs> that's a very good question. I I don't have as good as ears some other people. I, I I think other people would do a better job than this. But again, I I think it would be. It would probably sound like madness, you know. I mean, <laughs> there's a song that runs through my head every time I was writing the Oscar chapters, which is, you know, uh, "Your Mom's in My Business," which is a, a great, great hip hop song for those of you who are listening. Also, Miramax bought the movie rights, correct? Yes, they did. Who do you see playing the key roles? Well, you know, I again, Oscar doesn't speak much Spanish, so you could cast someone who doesn't speak. Spanish and, and get a good you know performance. I always thought, hey, you should throw Sean Kingston in there and have him try to pass for Dominican, <laughs> you know, and uh, call it a day. And then, I mean, there's a lot of uh, really good actors and actresses. This is all just kind of a fantasy life. Uh, but, you know, there's uh, Zoe Saldana and yeah. Dania Ramirez. Both of them would be perfect as Belicia. Right. And get some some young talented person to play Lola because that's a role that if the movie's ever made that uh, could make or break a career. Yeah, I love the character of Lola. So you have Junior who's narrating the story um, along with bits of Lola, um, and then the story focuses a lot on Lola and Belly and La Inca. Do you still consider Oscar to be the main character? I'd never considered Oscar to be main character okay. at all. I felt okay. like the main character was this family. Right. Oscar was just the same way that Junior guides the narrative. Oscar is the entree into the family. Mm, He's it. the door which leads us into this family. All right. One other thing that I just wanted to touch on really quickly because I wanted to get your perspective was um, there was also always the recurring appearance of the man with no face and the mongos. What's the deal with that? Does the man with no face represent the fuku or death? And is the mongos the safa or... Am I reading too no, much into I, that? <laughs> I wouldn't say you're reading too much into that. I just think that's that's too schematic. I'm, I'm, I've always <laughs> avoided schematic things. Uh, look, there's many, many readings. I I would say, I would argue that the footnote about the mongoose in this novel mm -hmm. is, I would take that at face value. Like, mm -hmm. I honestly believe that the, the when I wrote the mongoose, for me, he was not like some sort of folkloric force of good, but an alien. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, I mean, for those of you, for those of you who've ever read Alexander Key, a novel called *Flight to the Lonesome Place*, you will find where the mongoose in this novel came from. Where that's a book that stars an alien mongoose from another planet, and uh, the man without a face. Again, I think that depending on how you how you perceive the man without a face in this novel really determines how you read this book. Is this a menacing figure? Is this a figure of warning? Is this a benevolent figure? Right. There's many ways to read this. And depending on how you do, you get a different book. True, true. And so my answer to this is that I don't really know. I just wrote the darn thing, you know? <laughs> what do you know? You just wrote it. Yeah, for real. <laughs> do you think that, so, you know, coming from a Hispanic background, this book really doesn't seem that fantastical. Supernatural, you know, stuff goes on all the time, stories within your family. You know, you saw this, uh, this happened to your grandmother. Do you think that fantastical quality um, is real for a reader that doesn't come from that type of background? I mean, again, I don't know. Look, my... 
I, I guess I don't really buy too much into that notion that like every Latino family lives a magic realism world. <laughs> my mother was my mother's stupendously empirical. I mean, you don't come with, to my mom talking about your dreams. She's like, hmm, you're dreaming because you're lazy. You should work more. You know, and I mean, I guess my thing is, is that in every culture, there is a need for um, what I would call um, extreme narrative forms mm -hmm. to look. Human experience is so stupendously diverse and bizarre that to explain how we live and the things that happen to us and what this world is like. You need all sorts of strategies, and some of these strategies are mystical, exaggerated, folkloric, science fictional, fantasy. You know, you require a raft of strategies to approach what we call the world. Um, I think that there's no person who hasn't at a moment in their life felt like they were in the middle of a vampire novel or in the <laughs> middle of a horror story or you wake up and you're like, man, I feel like – this is some sort of like I'm, I'm in a science fiction book. What the hell is going on in my life? You know, and I think that this is a common experience is a common experience. I think that living, being a human being basically is the equivalent of living in a multi genre world. <laughs> you know, I think it's only those of us who want to forget what childhood is like that think that the human experience is one that's overdetermined by reality and by realism. Though, again, I think that in the Caribbean, I can speak most clearly to that, the folkloric elements are far more present than they are in some place like New Jersey. Right. There's no question. I mean, but again, I, I know plenty of Dominicans who have no folkloric element in their lives, who, again, I always joke around this, would rather talk to you about the White Stripes than talk to you about a Foucault. Sad. But re sad. but realistic, I think. I but I, see, I don't think it's. A, I think it's hard. One should not val put a value judgment on. I think that we can't exist without both. In other words, I'm not looking for the folkloric Dominican Republic where we all wear straw hats and contact the ancestors. <laughs> like, that just doesn't exist. What I'm looking for is a Dominican Republic where people like my grandmother who believe in the ancestors and people like my nephews who want to listen to Coldplay, that we can all be in the same world together. And the one doesn't eliminate the other. I agree. For I... me, it's like it's, it's, it's this complexity that makes this place worth living in. It's not the dream of a nostalgic or simplified reality. That, to me, scares the hell out of me. I no more want, no more want to live in a corporate, you know, uh, a corporate, like, f Disney world than I want to live in some nostalgic, uh, you know, pro-Santeria Dominican uh, <laughs> ridiculousness that, to me, this just doesn't have a place. But to live where these things are all mashed up, that sounds fun. In the book, there is a lot of reference to Pagina en Blanco, blank pages. Why did you f yeah. put that in the book? Well, I mean, it's it's there's nothing there's nothing more typical of the Caribbean experience than gaps in a story, pages ripped out, pages where things are not written, uh, and of course, there's a, a historical actual reference to the Pagina en Blanco. But I just was as interested as in the pieces of the story that are missing as the pieces of the stories that are present. So if there was a Pagina en Blanco in your book, how would you feel it now, two years and multiple awards later? It's a very good question. Um, I, I, I do think that part of me 
would leave it blank because I, I feel like the story is not done of this period in my life. I'm, I'm still sort of reeling from all the changes, um, from all the wonderful fortune that has happened to me, um, for the incredible support I've gotten from readers and from communities. Uh, but, you know, if I was forced to write something in, I, I felt that, like, um, I, w- I would say that there's a part of me that uh, is is very, very eager to move on to the next thing. For me, applause, uh, applause, even if it's coming from people you love, uh, you know, it, it's, it, it doesn't really last. It doesn't really imp- motivate me too much. But the the next project, that's what's been pulling me. That's what's really been pulling me. Well, we look forward to your next project, and we encourage everybody to read uh, The Brief and Wondrous Life of Oscar Wow. Uh, it's available on audiobook and iTunes. Thank you, Juno, for joining us. No, thank you so much for having me.